Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Nahmaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihi al-kareem amma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. So continuing our exploration of Talal al-Asad, formations of the secular, we are on page 35. All right, who's reading? Okay. What facilitated the essentialization of the sacred as an external transcendent power? My tentative answer is that the new theorizations of the sacred were connected with European encounters with the non-European world. Okay, so this is, this is uh, interesting. So the European encounters with the non-European world uh, um, is, he's suggesting that resulted in a change of definitions. And this is something that happens no matter what, where you'll have people, you know, when you have people of different cultures um, mixing in together, uh, the inevitable result is that uh, to sustain themselves, they'll have to redefine whatever it is that is important to them. Redefine, not in the sense of change it, but how they look at those things. Okay. Uh, my tentative answer is that, oh, in the enlightened space and time that witnessed the construction of religion and nature as universal categories, from early modern Europe, through what is retrospectively called the secular enlightenment, and into the long 19th century within Christian Europe and, its over, and in its overseas possessions, the things, words, and practices distinguished or set apart by nature folk were considered by Europeans as fetish and taboo. Mm -hmm. What had been regarded in the 16th and 17th centuries in theological terms as idolatry and devil worship, devotion to false gods, became the secular concept of superstition, a meaningless survival in the framework of 18th and 19th century evolutionary thought. But they remained objects and relations falsely given, truth status, wrongly endowed with virtuous power. Okay, so, so built into this is the sense that we are right, they're strange. Okay, and, and so you have, you know, terms like fetish, the idea being that, all right, you know, you're just interested in all this stuff and you're obsessed with it uh, and it may not even be healthy. And so they use terms like idolatry, devil worship, basically the idea, again, being we're right and whatever they're doing has to be um, most likely the opposite. Okay? And if not the opposite, then at least something strange. Okay? So superstition, all that stuff. But still, they had the belief that there was some, you know, like the term here is virtuous power. That, all right, when we watch these people, you know, this, these exotic people, there is something to it. And we still have a lot of that today. Like the way a lot of people look at the Buddhists, um, often there's a sense that the Buddhists just have some, some accomplished some special master control over themselves or over nature around them. Okay. They had to be constituted as categories of illusion and oppression before people could be liberated from them. As Freud knew when he used fetish and taboo to identify symptoms of primitive repressions in the psychopathology of modern individuals. So Freud, he's, <clears throat> he's a very harsh critic of religion itself. <clears throat> and so psychopathology is directly related to him, the idea being that these are all manifestations of, of mental illness. So religion itself is a manifestation, a collective manifestation of mental illness. It may therefore be suggested that profanation... Uh, is a kind of forcible emancipation from error and despotism. Reason requires that false things be either prescribed and eliminated 
or transcribed and recited as objects to be seen, heard, and touched by the properly educated senses. By successfully unmasking pretend power, profaning it, universal reason displays its own status as legitimate power. By empowering new things, this status is further confirmed. So the sacred right to property was made universal after church estates and common lands were freed, and the sanctity of conscience was constituted a universal principle in opposition to ecclesiastical authority and the rules casuistry. Yeah, casuistry. Casuistry authorized. At the very moment of becoming secular, these claims were transcendentalized, and they set in motion legal and moral disciplines to protect themselves with violence where necessary as universal. Although profanation appears to shift the gaze from the transcendental to the mundane, what it does is rearrange barriers between the illusory and the actual. Okay, so so a couple of points here. So, the idea of profanation, what does profanation mean? To bring something into the profane? Yeah, essentially, and the idea being uh, to take something out of the sacred. And so he's saying that profanation is a forcible emancipation from error and despotism. Now, how does that, what does that mean in terms of secularization? It means that authority is being taken away from people of authority. Okay? The authority is now being spread to the masses. Okay? Now, the way to make the analogy right now within our, our community is that because literacy in American Islam is so high, You'll have so many people who, by virtue of the fact that they're professionals in whatever field, feel compelled and feel qualified to go reading through all these books uh, and then coming up to interpretation of their own. Okay? Whether they have training or not, doesn't matter, they're, they're doing the whole process. And the idea being that um, interpretive authority would have been in the hands of the scholars with the understanding, well, okay, they're trained in this. Okay? But... On the one hand, I'm, uh, you know, we, uh, I'm part of a professional class, therefore I can interpret these things for myself. And look at these scholars, they're irrelevant. And so that becomes a vicious circle, um, just uh, um, giving the, the professional masses more and more excuse to, um, to interpret things for themselves. Right. Then what else? And so the idea being emancipation from despotism, meaning why do I have to listen to you? Because... So then, so then it says, reason requires that false things either be prescribed or eliminated. The idea being that now I can use my own intellect to determine, to determine what is true and what is false. Okay. And then, <clears throat> the result is empowering of other things. Okay. And so what you're basically saying is a shift, you know, this profanation is a sh- is shifting things, power, and authority from this small group, these small institutions, all the way across the masses. That's profanation. Yeah. Meaning, everybody has authority now. Yeah. yeah. So... Is that, is that similar to like what the... I, would, I heard like when the British came to uh, Egypt, they... Like I, so I heard like in order to lead a halakha, you had to be an Azuri graduate, okay. right? And then they removed that rule, so like everyone could like... That would be something like that, yeah. I'm not familiar with that specific example, but that's exactly the point, okay. yeah. Yeah, and so, so now imagine, take this point a step further, if authority is taken away from those people who are certified, 
then I can be charismatic, okay? not know anything, but dress in the proper costume that will attract people, speak in an eloquent language, and then I will start getting taken as an authority. Right? And I might have zero qualifications. Right? Yeah. And so one of the points of keeping the sacred is to make it hard for charlatans to come in. And so on the one hand, some people say the positive is that now everybody has access, everybody has authority, but then the problem is that you've opened the door for charlatans. Oh, wait, wait, there's a few more things. Sacred right to property was made universal <coughs> after church estates, common lands were freed. So it used to be that the church was the authority that, that could only own land. Now you can own land, I can own land. If I can afford to buy it, then I have the right to own land. Again, today that is something that may not seem like all, uh, all that... Uh, much of a big deal, but it's kind of revolutionary compared to the history of Europe. Okay. That I could work on land and perhaps own what I gain, but the land belongs to the church, the land belongs to the, the, the monarchy. And let's see what else. Um, okay, continue. Developing a Durkheimian insight, Richard Comstock has suggested that the sacred as a kind of behaving is not merely a number of immediate appearances, but a set of rules, prescriptions, proscriptions, interdictions that determine the shape of the behavior and whether it is to count as an instance of the category in question. This is helpful, but I think one also needs to attend to the tripartite fact that one, all rule governed behavior carries social sanctions, but that, two, the severity of the social sanctions varies according to the danger that the infringement of the rule constitutes for a particular ordering of society, and that, three, such assessments of danger do not remain historically unchanged. Okay, so this is, this is uh, another profound point. When <clears throat> law and order is dictated by, uh, by religion, it's not as easy to make a connection between the severity of the crime and how it immediately affects society, okay? Because, so for example, in, in our tradition, zina is a crime against the state, okay? Right. And not only that, the ayahs, when it speaks about the punishment for zina, you know, caution against you relenting, okay? Don't let your mercy for them, your compassion for them, make you fall short, meaning it's a mandatory punishment, okay? Now, but the damage that does to society is not easily uh, noticeable, right? It's... Uh, that Zina does? Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe you can say that, okay, if it's mass Zina, okay, then you can argue that, well, yeah, now family's getting corrupted, but what if it's one case, okay? It's hard to uh, state, you know, how that, how that destroys much, okay? And suppose they're both unmarried, okay? And so, so what happens then when you secularize it, meaning when you put it in the, the hands of the people, it says all rule-governed behaviors create social sanctions, right? So if you break the law, there's going to be a consequence to it, okay? But then number two, the severity will vary according to how much you have affected society, okay? But... We're saying Zina has this very heavy-duty punishment. There may, it's, you know, this is what it's called a victimless crime in the sense that they're both agreeing to do it. Okay? Uh, but you, don't, you can't tell if it's how it's affecting society, if it's one case, if it's scattered cases. Okay? Um, 
And so we're saying in a secularized society, zina eventually would not be a crime. Okay? If there's not a noticeable effect on society. If you bring forth data to say, okay, one instance of zina causes all these problems, that's one thing. I don't know of any study like that. So how do you, <clears throat> how do you sort of negotiate then sort of the quote-unquote harsh punishment we have? We just say we're, we're kind of doing it because... Well, so we're, I mean, at, at the end of the day, um, uh, uh, there's going to be some amount of it that is obedience, uh, right? That's, uh, um, I mean, we can give a rational explanation, or we can <laughs> rationalize it by saying that, all right, if you have a healthy society in the sense that everyone has some degree available of shelter and sustenance, the ability to earn, they're secure and everything, and then somebody steals, then it's a very severe punishment. Right, but um, in this setup that we're talking about, um, the punishment may not be as severe, mm-hmm. or it may even become more severe, depending upon how the people in society feels that affects society. Yeah, yeah. Right, and I mean, what uh, I don't think it's a way. There's a way to measure what's more severe: putting cutting off someone's hand or putting someone in a cage, you know, for for however much uh, time, you know. Um, but the point is that. Uh, he's making this point that um, the severity of the social sanctions varies according to the danger that the infringement of the rule constitutes for a particular ordering society. So the crime will match what, uh, the punishment will match what seems to be the severity of the crime in a secular situation. Uh, whereas in our system, there is a level of obedience. You can still kind of make sense of it that these punishments are so severe to prov- as, a, as a deterrent. Right. And then such, such assessments of danger, they don't remain historically unchanged. It will go up and down. Yeah. Okay, continue. Um, attention to this fact should shift our preoccupation with definitions of the sacred as an objective experience to the wider question of how a heterogeneous landscape of power, moral, political, and economic, is constituted. What disciplines, individual and collective, are necessary to it? This does not mean that the sacred must be regarded as a mask of power, but we should look to what makes certain practices conceptually possible, desired, mandatory, including the everyday practices by which the subject's experience is disciplined. Okay. So, one question becomes, uh, what is the relationship, where does power play out? Okay. And so he's making the point that there's multiple types of power. There's, of course, political power, okay? There's economic power. Economic power both includes the power um, that comes by having wealth as well as the power to restrain someone from having wealth, right? Uh, That, like, when you're in poverty, uh, it is very hard to get out of poverty in terms of the way the system is set up. Then, of course, there's moral power, which we might call moral authority in our language. And so, so the question becomes, is... When we're making something, when we're doing a process of profanation, okay, is this just like a mask of just talking about where power is? Okay? And he's saying, no, it's more than that. Okay? But a lot of times, that is where the question is. When we're speaking about uh, secularization, we're basically speaking about who has power. Okay? But the point he's trying to emphasize is that, no, it's more than just who has power. Such an approach, I submit, would give us a better understanding of how the sacred and therefore the profane can become the subject not only of religious object. thought, I'm sorry, become the object not only of religious thought but of secular practice too. Okay. Um, you guys want to continue? 
Yeah. Uh, how much time do you have? Um, I'll have to stop. Um, probably about like 11, uh, 12 or at the very latest. I mean, I think this graduation might be finishing, so students might be coming, but uh, let's see what we can do. Okay, myth and scriptures. Myth and scriptures. I referred to some, uh, some functions of myth as secular discourse and enlightenment and art and enlightenment art and manners. The part played by myth as sacred discourse in religion and poetry during the 19th and 20th centuries is more complicated. Inevitably, in what follows, I must select and simplify. Okay, so... Once again, when we're speaking about the role of myth in the Enlightenment, it's in the category of art. Right? So you'll find myth discussed in paintings, you'll find it in architecture, you'll find it in how people conduct themselves with each other, as opposed to the role it plays in myth where it's taken as real. And as, a pro, as opposed to the role it takes in old poetry where it's prescriptive, meaning it's prescribing behavior. Okay. It has been remarked that the German high, higher criticism liberated the Bible from the letter of divine inspiration and allowed it to emerge as a system of human significances. We should note, however, that liberation signals a far-reaching change in the sense of inspiration from an authorized reorientation of life towards a telos into a psychology of artistry whose source is obscure, and therefore becomes the object of speculation, belief, slash knowledge. It was a remarkable transformation. Okay, so, inspiration. So, inspiration um, is an interesting issue. So, this would be like, um, in our tradition, we might speak of wahi, you know, this revelation that the Prophet, peace be upon him, is receiving, ilham, which is something more like what we define as, as inspiration, but basically the idea being that you're getting something from a source outside of your own brain. Okay? You're getting something from a source outside of what is in your community, so from, so from some obscure source. Okay? And that becomes the question then, like how does someone come up with something? Okay, where do ideas come from? In a purely, purely religious sense, we need to say ideas are coming from God, they're coming from angels, they're coming from the force, they're coming from, you know, the, the, the universe, etc., etc. But from within a, a purely secularized perspective, no, it's a firing of neurons. Okay? But the question is, something as simple as that, which is central to religion, right? Because if you remove the idea that you can get communication from outside of you, you've removed revelation, yeah. Mm. But uh, then that means the Quran in this lens would just be something that the Prophet came up with, right? That's the basic point. And so, so the point is trying to figure out what is inspiration. Okay. For in the former divine word, both spoken and written, was necessarily also material. As such, the inspired words were object were the object of a particular person's reverence the means of his or her practical devotions at particular times and places. The body, taught over time to listen, to recite, to move, to be still, to be silent, engaged with the acoustics of words, with their sound, feel, and look. Practice at devotions deepen the inscription of the sound, look, and feel in his sensorium. When the devotee heard God speak, there was a sensuous connection between inside and outside, a fusion between signifier and signified. The proper reading of the scriptures that enabled her to hear divinity speak 
dependent on disciplining the, disciplining the senses. Okay, so this is getting uh, interesting now. Think about this in the context of salah, in the context of namaz. Okay. Sorry? No, I was like, that's the first thing I went to. Oh, I meant good, good. So it says, so we're speaking about inspiration. So it says, the body taught over time to listen, to recite, to move, to be still, to be silent, engage with the acoustics of words, with the sound, feel, and look. And you think how bad this was. <laughs> and so, so basically we're saying, when the devotee heard God speak, there was a sensuous connection between inside and outside. Okay? A fusion between signifier and signified. So think about how much difficulty... Uh, a person has in concentrating in prayer, okay? Um, and how much, uh, at least it should be better if they understand what they're saying, okay? But still a lot of people understand what they're saying, they still get distracted, okay? And so what has happened? The divinity of the prayer has been lost. Because if I truly feel I am reciting the words of God, okay? Um, I should take it not only as something, you know, of great, uh, requiring great attention and majesty, or illustrating great majesty, but something that is more delicious for my being than anything else. Yeah. And the funnest example of that is the tashahud. Okay. When you're doing atahiyatu lillahi wa salawatu wa tayyibat, what are you reciting? Like, the conversation. The conversation and the night journey. So you are reciting a conversation between Allah and the Prophet, peace be upon him, and you're saying it in first person. Okay. So peace be upon, O oh, you Prophet. Who's saying that? Allah is saying that, right? So you are saying Allah's greeting to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Okay. And, and so what we're saying essentially is that uh, aside from the normal, you know, you know the fact that shaitan wants you to, to go away, um, we're taught in commentary uh, that when you think of Allah, shaitan retreats, okay? Which means that if you're distracted during prayer, that's you, okay? That's not shaitan, okay? And this is... <laughs> I like how you looked at me when you said that. <laughs> no, I looked at you and I was like, we can, we can relate to this. I was like, I can't, I can't relate to my teacher on this. And <laughs> Zuffer looked at me too. Both of you looked at me. I was like, thanks, guys. So, so, no, 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 I looked at you and it's camaraderie, bro. We're, we're so, so, so the point being, that becomes a huge step towards the, uh, the profanation of prayer, the desacralizing of prayer. Because then, what's the next step you do from there? That if, you know, it's okay to make your prayers and you're just lost, not thinking about anything, you're saying it doesn't really have that much value, okay? Now, uh, from your age group, no one, not too many people are going to say, well, okay, there's, then why pray? I mean, a lot of people say, you know, I feel like I'm not getting anything out of the prayer, I keep getting distracted. And then to them, we say, you still pray, the act of obedience is still huge, okay? Uh, but then move forward a generation, two or three, then people say, well, why not just restructure it to something that I'll get more out of, okay? Like, let's have, uh, you know, um, it's, uh, let's have a woman lead, and if I'm a woman, then um, I feel, you know, my esteem building, right? And that's how this logic works, right? That, um, 
Um, you know, I feel so disconnected because it's some guy from overseas and, and, you know, just talking about politics and this and that. So, um, instead, let's have PowerPoint. Okay. Meaning, someone had asked me, can we do PowerPoint during a chutzpah? I know someone, uh, there's a much of the thing that I've read, heard, heard in the Bay Area that. where the mom does, like, music and stuff in the, in the general chutzpah. In the chutzpah? Yeah. So I, don't I mean, I, I saw a masjid in Chicago that, like... He plays the oud, I think. During the khutbah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's happening now. I think, like, there's... Okay. I, I saw on Facebook, like, there was a group that was, like, instead of Juma, we'll do... We're going to discuss the ongoing situation in, like, Syria. Okay. And, and all these are illustrating that exact point. Yeah. Right? That, that imam might be, like, I was kind of shy because I thought he was, like, he's... He, I think he's, like, fairly traditional because he's from, like, Morocco and I don't know if he's trained or not. But he's, like, he's... He, I remember seeing him with, like, Zayd Shakir. So he's not, like, this sort of, you know, a lot of times that traditional community will sort of shunt people like that away. But he's pretty, like, known and, like... I'm so skeptical that it'd be for the khutbah. It could be, like, Bayan. Right. Maybe you know, yeah, maybe. and they just before before. Maybe maybe yeah, like, but I mean, there's like, like there's yeah. people there, and then there's the whole congregation, and he's playing. Yeah, that that, see, that would make sense if it was like a bayan yeah. and they had music and all that. So so the point being then that uh, that it allows us then to take this act that's supposed to be pure submission and reform it. Okay, and. That's a natural consequence of, of secularization. So we're saying on the one hand, part of the problem is that for me as a believer, the divinity of it is lost. Okay? And then so someone else comes along and says, well, if there's no divinity in it, then let's do something where you feel more. Okay? And that's exactly what reform is. Right? I mean, one type of reform is where you're repackaging everything and keeping that which should be unchanged, unchanged, you know, um, but you're making it so that you know people can come closer to God, but then the person who comes along and says, "No, we're going to change all those things too," with the same intention of bringing people closer to God, that's reform, right? And you have this look like of displeasure. Well, that's so, that's the reality. I mean, if they have, have a, it's not it's not displeasure. It's like it was a look of like inevitable. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's or like, like resignation. Yeah. yeah. Like it's not that like. It's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Because people aren't happy. And I don't know, like, like the people, like, in my conversations with people who are more uh, conservative or traditional. Yeah. That's sort of the point that I always want to get across is, like, you're not, you know, like, you. I feel like as a community, or especially the, the religious crowd or whatever you want to yeah. call it, right? Like, they're worried about things that are very, that's not even the point, yeah. right? And I'm like, you know, people are going to just try to reform this. Like, you're going to you're gonna wake up one day and what's going to be known as Islam isn't going to be what you exactly. think it is, yeah. right? It's going to be what Islam is to, like, people will be something totally foreign and uh -huh. alien to you. Yeah. And so, like, if you really care about, like, this tradition, you have to, like, you have to negotiate. You have to let go of, like, some of the things that, like, you're so, mm -hmm. like, fighting for. I mm -hmm. don't know. That, 
that may be negotiable. That, that are yeah. negotiable, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm saying the things that you see as non-negotiable, like you can't treat everything as non-negotiable. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. then the things that are read like Salah, right? Yeah. Or like things that are considered pillars of Islam, mm-hmm. right? Like we can just say Ramadan, mm-hmm. Hajj, like things that are critical, those things are going to be the ones that are yeah. going away. They're so going to be put on the table. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to let go of these other things to, you mm-hmm. know, to say, well, okay, well, let's, these things are critical, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's like what, I think, I, I think the, I like what Talib does with that. They have that, their, um, what's their motto, right? Their little tagline, come to Islam as you are. And come to Islam as it is, as you are, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, and I think that that sort of illustrates that sort of middle way that you people should go, where you have to be like, look, yeah, we're we're gonna accept you, and mm-hmm. you know, as a person and where you're at. But you know, Islam's all. You know, I think Islam is also is coming this certain way, and you have to kind of accept Islam as that yeah. way as well. Yeah. I think uh, also remember uh, Sheikh Ubaidullah. You, I think he had a we had, Adnan had a conversation with him about like. Uh, I want to say nation or something, and he he mentioned a good point about Islam where he was I, just like that, I, that wasn't for uh, that wasn't to you sh- don't share that point okay okay, okay okay so yeah and and so <clears throat> this is what we're speaking about in terms of of the profanation right that the people the masses can then even determine how to worship Allah right. That's uh, that becomes an inevitable consequence of of this whole process. Yeah. Okay, in contrast, the mythic method used by the higher biblical criticism rendered the material 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 materiality materiality of scriptural sounds and marks into a spiritual poem whose effect was generated inside the subject as believer independent of the senses. Okay, so then when we get into the academic study of religion. Okay. trying to make sense of how all this stuff works. Remember we were saying that the seminary, the madrasa, uh, and madrasa, we don't mean general school, we mean like the Islamic seminary, the question you're trying to answer with the whole curriculum is what does God want from me? What does Allah want from me? Okay. And how do I do it? And the answer that the academy is, is, is or the question the academy is trying to answer is how does the world work? So in the study of Islam, or in the study of religion, the academy is saying, okay, how does, or asking, how does each step work? Okay, so God is not part of the, part of the discourse as a reality in the academy, because that's not anything they can test or, or verify. So that means when they're looking at scripture, they're calling it a spiritual poem. So the Quran becomes for them, the Bible becomes for them a spiritual poem, okay? which then affects the person inside. Okay. And, and so then how do we address that? Like, what if someone comes along and says, that's basically what the Quran is. It's a spiritual poem that affects people inside. Okay. I mean, I would say that's not from our tradition. Okay. Like, that's not, that's, I remember you saying, like, back when I took your classes that, like, um, there's a difference between an academic study of Islam mm-hmm. and studying Islam itself, yeah. right? And I think, like, the distinction I'd make is, like, every tradition has its own sources of authority, uh-huh. right? And it's, like, if you want to study Islam, there's a way we do it, mm-hmm. right, within our own mm-hmm. tradition. And, like, 
if you're look, that's really like looking at it like outside in. Okay, so now let's shift the question. Uh, how do I know if it's truth or how do I know if it's right? You know, you're claiming that it's coming from God. Yeah. So, how do I know if you're right? I mean, I can't prove that. So this is this is the the wonderful thing in, in the Quran. Did you ask? Do you do the Quran test, right? It's come up with something better. Yeah. Right. If this is the word of God, then it is better than anything anybody can come up with, right? And so use your full mental faculties, and see if you can come up with something that is, that can compare, right? In all the different ways you can imagine. Okay. Now. If I have doubt, that's the point I'm addressing. If I have doubt, I have to go through that process. Yeah. Right. Now, someone, now, I could see someone responding to that, saying, like, Western liberalism is a much better, better alternative mm-hmm. to, like, uh, like a Muslim society, mm-hmm. right? And, like, like I, there's only so much you can say, well, those si- societies aren't based on the Quran, they're not based on whatever. I mean, at sure. the end of the day, they're still Muslim societies. Sure. I mean, this, uh, this becomes uh, uh, the question of how do, we, how do we compare, how do we, what's our basis of analyses. Yeah. And so if someone says, I mean, look at Western liberalism um, and look at the society it's created, look at what Muslim societies have created, sure, that's a great point if you're living in suburban America. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you're living in suburban America in 2017, yeah. that look at the life that I have here, right? Um, but if I'm living in suburban America in 2017, I can probably have a similar life in most of those countries too, yeah. right? Because all that's saying is that I have wealth. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to this, um, you know, if I'm living in the city and if I'm living in the south side and the west side and I'm hearing gunshots every night, yeah. Uh, then it's uh, not as easy of a, of a critique. Yeah. Right? Because then what are we basically saying? I'm looking at the ideals of the world that I live in. I'm looking at the, the worst stereotypes of the world, of the, that other world. Yeah. And so that person is not into interested in a conversation. You're doing what the Europeans did, right? With the fetish and the taboo. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're forming a category just to pick yourself better than yeah. they are. Yeah. And, and we do too. I've probably given you the example in previous classes of this student of mine. She herself was older. She was probably in her 50s uh, when she was taking my class. And she just made this stray comment about in Islam, we have the Virgin Mary and we're also upright. And in this society, look, you have all these single mothers, Right. And it was such a ridiculous point, all the more offensive because in my class at that time, there were single mothers, right? And, and you know, she, uh, it was like, it was such a ridiculous, offensive point. Uh, but she was doing exactly the same thing, you know, evaluating the self according to the highest of ideals and yeah. evaluating everyone else according to um, not just worst stereotypes, but condemning uh, uh, stereotypes. Okay.
Um, let's uh, finish off this paragraph. An earlier change had assisted this shift. As John Montag has argued, the notion of revelation signifying a statement that issues from a supernatural being and that requires mental assent on the part of the believer dates only from the early modern period. For medieval theologians, he writes, revelation has to do primarily with one's perspective on things in light of one's final end. It is not a supplementary packet of information about facts which are around the bend, as it were, from rational comprehension or physical observation. According to Thomas Aquinas, the prophetic gift of revelation is a passion to be undergone, not a faculty to be used. And among the words he uses to refer it is inspiratio, a Neoplatonic hierarchy of mediations linked divinity to all creatures, allowing the medium of language to facilitate the union of the divine with the human. Okay, so this last point is also pretty interesting. So we have Thomas Aquinas who is uh, essentially, in the 1100s, he reforms, restructures all of Catholicism okay? and, and connects it with Aristotle. So if we think of the, the big phases of the history of Catholicism, not uh, so much talking about the shifts like the Re Reformation and stuff like that, but so you have the period basically of Jesus, peace be upon him, um, and then the period immediately after that is Paul. Okay? And, and then from Paul, it's the period of St. Augustine. So St. Augustine is like the 400s. Okay? Paul is like 50 years after Isa de Islam. Okay? So then you have the period of St. Augustine. St. Augustine is from where? Yeah. North Africa. He's I was going to say, you're him up uh, so close, much. Close, yeah. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to say that, but I didn't have the confidence. I was going to answer Disappointed that. Like, anyway, so, so, and so what is he providing? He's, he's making, uh, I mean, looking from the outside in, he's, he's connecting this world with the divine world, and he's really emphasizing this confessional nature of religion, this idea that I seek to get closer to God. I need to get closer to God. What was the case with Paul? That the end of the world is coming in about a week. And let us prepare our societies. Okay, let's prepare ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? That Jesus is returning just right around the corner. Okay. And then move forward to the 1100s. You have St. Thomas Aquinas. And there's a whole bunch of th uh, thinkers in between. But St. Thomas Aquinas is now constructing it into a whole organized worldview uh, driven by Aristotle. And a lot of that is inspired by um, uh, Ibn Rushd, Averroes. Like, he quotes these two people quite a bit, uh, Aristotle and Averroes. Okay. And then we get into the modern era, and we'll see where it goes. I think the next big shift is what's happening right now, which is um, um, liberation theology. right? Liberation theology, which is now adding marks to, to the thought. And now it's basically, um, you know, where you're turning Catholicism into a movement against oppressive power. Okay. That seems to be the direction that, that it's going. Now, why are we saying this? So, St. Thomas Aquinas is that phase. The prophetic gift of revelation is a passion to be undergone, not a faculty to be, to, to be used. And among the words he uses are inspiration. So what is it that makes someone a prophet? Different than our tradition. Okay? Uh, for him, it's something about your being, okay? where you, are, you have this passion to be overtaken by divinity, okay? as opposed to being a job. Because okay. for us, we speak of it more as a job. Okay. And I think that's even modern Islam, modern American Islam. We speak of it as a job. Okay. Was that how it was seen classically? Uh, I think um, historically, like these things were not as 
specified um, um, in the sense that, okay, the prophet is a prophet. But then in the modern era, we will say, well, the prophet has such and such responsibilities. Therefore, Jesus is a prophet, but not married, right? Things like that, okay? And some of that is just making it analytical, and some of that also takes the life out of it, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, does it matter for our purposes if Jesus is a prophet, but Mary is not? In gender conversation, it becomes huge, and so for self-esteem for a lot of people, it becomes huge. But the key point is that, okay... There is divine communication that Maryam salam, has. And the appreciation of her in the Quran is about her faith. It's about her parents making a prayer for her, and then about her faith, and then leading to, to her son. right? And sometimes we get caught up in the technicalities. Right? Which is a, we project our sort of um, modes of thinking into it too, I think. So right? then that also like, happens, yeah. Let's not, you know. Yeah. And, so, and sometimes that stuff is necessary when you get into debates with people of other traditions, but here's what St. Thomas Aquinas is defining it as a gift of passion. Passion here is in the religious sense, like when they say the passion of the Christ, that, that a prophet can't not be someone, um, who, or the prophet can only be someone who is just overtaken by the divine. The prophet can't not be not taken over by the divine. Right. How yeah. is that? How is that playing to like for for us and like for example like Yunus Islam? Yeah. So so I mean so one way to think about it is that if we say all the prophets are the same, yeah, then we do the same thing we do with the Sahabas, which is that we minimize their differences. But when we talk about Abu Bakr, especially Omar, we definitely talk about his personality. Uh, we talk about uh, Ali and his personality, and all these prophets have very distinct personalities, yeah. right? And, and so, so, at one level, you can say, if someone is, what do we find common? Okay. Um, but then another level, you still want to look at, okay, what is it that made Yunus Yunus? Um, he's getting disappointed by his people, right? And so, it seems as though he's getting fed up. So, he leaves them. Like, you guys are hopeless. Okay. And then, he discovers by getting swallowed by the fish that, yeah, that's not... That's not uh, how he should be, right? Yeah. Yeah, like it, I feel like doing that gives you a lot greater spectrum of sort of you know what human behavior allows. And ideal, and these are people who are ideals of human behavior. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like, you know, like if if you don't do that, you're like, how can you even think those things? You get that from like most yeah. people arguing to say those things. Well, it's like, what do you mean? Well, that? because the the risk is going in the uh, the the other extreme. Which is you, when you make them into pathetic people, uh. right? Because if you look at when, when Muslims read, you know, the, the early books of the Bible yeah. and look at the behaviors of the prophets there, oh, yeah. you know, um, for us it looks offensive. Noah is drinking, you know, Lot and his daughters, this person is doing adultery, so forth and so on. And for that, become, that be, that's the other extreme, mm. that you're not just making them human, you're making them lower than human. And then in the philosophy there is that they're still getting redemption. Mm. Okay. But we're saying, no, that's not how a model can be. So. Okay, um, let's stop right here. And so we'll continue with this paragraph on the Reformation and Counter-Reformation for next time on page 38. Any last questions or thoughts? Alright, so Hanakullahumma bihamdika, nashhadu illa ilaha illa anta, nastafiruka wa natubu ilayk, wa akhir da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.